0: Welcome, and thanks for joining the Closed End Fund Association for another discussion. Today we will hear from an industry expert who shares insight on a timely issue affecting the closed-end fund space.
1: Good afternoon. Today is Monday, July 25th, and returning to the CIFA podcast series are Noel O'Halloran, Chief Investment Officer with KPI Global Investors and Portfolio Manager of the New Ireland Fund, and Jonathan Morgan, President and CEO of Canadian General Investments Limited. With a focus on global equity, we're going to hear from the New Ireland Fund about its single-country fund approach and the overall outlook for Ireland and Europe. From there, we'll pivot to Canada for a look at its investment landscape, as well as Jonathan's views on the emerging market sector. To frame things up, I'd like to remind listeners that today's discussion comes at an interesting time given the very public international trade dialogue. Italy's volatile political situation breaks its impending consequences and the Fed continuing to hike U.S. interest rates. The global equity markets have captured investors' attention. Without further ado, I'll turn things over to Noel. When we spoke last October, you felt that Ireland had a very strong macro economy. How is the Irish economy positioned at this point? Where are you seeing opportunities in Irish equities? Noel?
2: Yeah, as we were last October, the Irish economy continues to perform extremely well. So at this point in time, we recorded GDP growth of over 7% in 2017 and the Irish Central Bank is forecasting uh, GDP growth of close to 5% again for 2018 and indeed expects something similar for 2019. So the economy remains very robust and strong from my perspective and uh, we see ourselves now having been through a restructuring phase in the economy. We're now very much in a growth phase. Uh, trade has helped that uh, as one component. So many of our trading partners in both North America and Europe being strong has helped the very open Irish economy. But from my perspective, probably more excitement in terms of the strength in the domestic economy. So the Irish domestic economy is is very strong at the moment. Um, So whether we look at consumer confidence, if I look at the unemployment rate, we're now sub-6% against a European average of 8.5%. And indeed, the employment market itself, we now have employment levels back to where we were uh, pre the bubble back in 2008. So other indicators, such as the real estate market, remain very strong. So the consumer overall, whether the housing market, whether it's commercial rents, we've seen some very strong growth. And another good indicator that I look at, um, particularly from the bank's perspective, is uh, credit growth, and we're seeing some strong credit growth. So... Overall, the Irish economy is as well positioned today as it was six months ago, uh, with the obvious sort of caveat of of Brexit, which no doubt we'll discuss later. In terms of opportunities for Irish equities, uh, I remain very optimistic on on the portfolio. I think that growth phase uh, in particular helps uh, a number of uh, sectors that I'm interested in. So in particular, I suppose I'm looking more towards the cyclical sectors because of where we are in the cycle. Uh, Within that I'd point to some of the construction and building related stocks such as CRH which remains the largest holding in the portfolio. Kingspan, another specialty building material stock, is another strong holding in the portfolio. I also like the transportation sector uh, and continue to have a large position in Ryanair which remains a favorite. Um, Domestic consumer plays, uh, the banks have been of increasing interest to me and particularly with the lending growth that I have already alluded to, and also some sort of specialist consumer stocks within the Irish economy, such as hotels operator, Delata or, or a gas station operator, Applegreen. They've, again, been kind of the things that we like within the market, but overall, very optimistic still on the outlook. I just like the overall earnings growth profile of the portfolio. with a very attractive valuation still in place.
1: Noel, last time we spoke, you also mentioned... How Ireland will likely have some negative impact from Brexit, but nothing dramatic. However, there still seems to be a lot of unanswered questions around Britain's exit from the EU. How is this likely to be resolved, and how do you see this impacting Ireland as well as the broader European Union? Noel?
2: Well, it's a great question. And six months on, I think the only known we still have is that a deal has to be agreed by and for implementation on the 31st of March 2019. So we're now nine months away. Uh, and the rest remain, from my perspective, kind of unknown unknowns. Uh, we literally, It literally could be any sort of a deal. And anything I might say now could look very stupid and be changed tomorrow. So, so the nature of the deal uh, that will come, we still don't know. Uh, our working assumption at KBI is that a deal will be done. Our working assumption is, is based on the fact that a no deal, which is a possibility, would be absolutely disastrous and, and therefore inconceivable for the UK and for probably the broader European Union, but specifically for the UK. So an assumption that we will get some sort of a soft Brexit from our perspective, that, you know, should knock something like half percent off Irish GDP on an ongoing basis. So that's half percent off the strong figures I've already commented on. So not a major impact, but obviously an impact, and certainly from an industry perspective, that would hit sectors such as the food sector, which are very strong export links with the UK. So at an overall level, probably a negative from the Irish economy perspective from an Irish portfolio point of view and from an Irish economy point of view, it's all negative. So in particular, as we discussed last October, financial services, professional services and sectors such as real estate would definitely be beneficiaries of of a a Brexit move. As we've already been seeing firms from the UK relocating operations or teams to Dublin uh, that will only accelerate, I guess, as and then all those unknowns become more known. Um, so we you know from a portfolio point of view, that's why it's still like sectors such as the REITs, which are beneficiaries of those kind of moves.
1: And Noel, um more broadly, what are your thoughts on the outlook for Europe and European equities? Are there areas that seem particularly attractive and is there anything that you'd avoid?
2: I think Europe as a whole is is a bit like Ireland. We're in a recovery phase. Uh, the big difference is Europe as a whole, uh, recovery in Europe, excitement can be 2.5% growth, whereas Ireland can be 5, 6, 7, as I've already talked about. But Europe has, has had five or six quarters of, of trend growth. Um, people got a little bit concerned in the first quarter of this year that we did see slower growth again, but that was predominantly down to weather. We had an extremely difficult winter, lots of snow, uh, and certainly all the recent indicators are pointing to the European economy picking up again. So overall, I think we still think, um, you know, from a growth point of view, Europe has a couple of strong years of growth ahead of it. Uh, inflation is a particular concern, so therefore the ECB will continue to be supportive of that growth. Uh, politics has always remains something to watch. So we have political issues in Germany. We, we always seem to have political issues in Italy. So for us, based in Europe, uh, we don't get too phased by these issues. They're kind of perennial issues. But from a stock market point of view, I think Europe, similar to Ireland, is in a a good recovery phase. We're seeing strong earnings growth um, in 2017. Probably a slightly lower pace of earnings growth for 2018, but nonetheless positive again. Uh, The strength in the euro versus the dollar over the last 12 months has dented some of that earnings growth. But as we move into 2019, I think, again, we'll see some strong earnings growth out of Europe. So so overall, constructive on Europe. Uh, We probably think over recent months, Europe itself is probably... Underperformed and probably for the wrong reasons uh, from global investors' point of view, so possibly an opportunity there. In terms of areas we like, um, again, similar to the, the, the Irish portfolio, uh, we would be more constructive on the cyclical sectors of the market. Uh, we would tend to be, and particularly as we take a 12 to 18 month view, be a little bit cautious on in the interest rate sensitive sectors, particularly bond type proxies, because undoubtedly German 10 year bonds at current levels we think are too low, so we do see a rise in the European core uh, on the also you know, traditional sectors such as telecom or utilities and maybe some of the staple sectors may be may be uh, vulnerable to those rate rises so we would be much more uh, favorable towards the cyclical sectors. Europe does have a great tech sector so uh, tech has dominated fangs in particular markets such as the US and emerging markets. Europe is devoid of those types of stocks uh, and possibly look at current valuations Maybe that's not a, good, a bad thing going forward from a, a European perspective.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Noel. You know, I think Ireland illustrates how single-country investing can be effectively positioned in a portfolio. And when we discuss challenges Brexit brings to the European trading bloc, you know, the recent events have created uncertainty in the North American trading bloc. So, Jonathan, I'm hoping that you can share your perspective on the likely outcome from the current trade disagreements as well as for outlook for the Canadian market. Jonathan?
0: Yeah, well, I think the likely outcome is that given enough time, uh, some sort of economic rationality will come to the fore once again. I mean, you have to remember, not only are Canada and the United States uh, close friends and trading partners, Canada is uh, actually your number one trading partner and the number one export market for 32 individual states. So it's not nothing, it is important. We do periodically have these recurring trade disputes. That was why we created NAFTA in the first place. Two of the trade disputes that keep on coming up are softwood lumber and uh, dairy. And in fact, those were left out of NAFTA because, you know, we just never did agree on them. And so it was intentionally left out. We would have periodically revisit the softwood lumber agreement and we just sort of agreed to go our separate ways on dairy. NAFTA itself was probably due for an updating, but I think what's going on right now is you know, in the long run counterproductive for both sides. That said, you know, if if NAFTA were to go away, then you'd end up seeing probably over a five-year period, the best estimates I've seen is about a one percent reduction in Canadian GDP. So because we would still have the WTO rules. However, um, given some of the recent moves that you've seen, it doesn't look like the uh, the current U.S. administration is terribly interested in following the niceties and going by uh, the traditional way of applying these sorts of things. So it could end up being worse. I think the the area where you really have to worry about it is in the auto parts sector, which is a major component of the central Canadian economy. But it's one of those things where you quickly find that it hurts in both directions because the average auto part crosses either the US or uh, sorry, at the Canadian or Mexican border, I think it's 11 times before a car is made. So you, get, you know, it's a fully integrated supply chain. So you'd end up causing a lot of pain in the United States as well. I don't expect we'll end up getting that far, but you never know. So I think that the outcome will eventually be some sort of updated system. Maybe there might even be some change on dairy, which wouldn't be a, a terrible thing, frankly. It's it's it only exists for political reasons, as opposed to making any sort of economic sense. That said, I think we've been able to position the portfolio quite well to avoid the sectors that are, are worst affected by that, by the current trade, imbal- or not trade imbalance, but a trade dispute, the trade is actually reasonably in balance. So you tend to focus on things that aren't so exposed to, directly to the US market and you know at the same time we are getting back into this sort of tit for tat thing so you're basically trying to avoid that and remember the canadian stock market and the canadian economy look rather different because the toronto stock exchange is the premier stock exchange for junior oil and gas and mining as well so we've got actually quite a, a lot of companies that are headquartered here because they're listed here but actually have operations elsewhere in the world so we've got quite a exposure to companies that do that sort of thing. On top of that, despite the dispute, the Canadian economy has has continued to be very, very robust and uh, uh, is one of the leading economies in the G7 in terms of GDP. And it has been since before the crisis, uh, remembering we didn't really have a financial crisis here. Uh, So it remains robust. Then you're also able to pick your spot, certain markets like Toronto and Vancouver. People are probably aware of the, the real estate that's going on here. But it's also one of the reasons the real estate is so high is we're seeing large inflows of people and talent and capital into these markets, in part driven by the harder line that's being taken in the U.S., where, you know, for example, tech talent is actually opting instead to come to Toronto and Vancouver.
1: Thanks for that overview, Jonathan. And if we could look beyond North America, we've seen a lot of investors looking to emerging markets for higher growth rates. But with political risk in countries like Argentina, Venezuela, Turkey, and South America, in combination with rising U.S. rates impacting some of the emerging market currencies, what does your outlook look like for the emerging market equities?
0: well i mean emerging markets is is one of those things where it's such a broad basket you really have to pick your spots the main thing i think to focus on is what's china doing china remains the most dynamic market as well as the biggest and so you can look at what's happening with china and the countries that it trades with and then those companies that are profiting from that so i especially like for example Chinese companies that are serving the domestic demand. So they aren't really exposed in the same way to uh, trade disputes. And then satellite countries that are feeding into that. I mean, one of the ideas behind the TPP was actually to try and achieve some of these things that the US government is now trying to put pressure on China about and it seems an odd time to pick a fight with all your friends when you want them to help you exert pressure on China. Anyways, I should also mention, just going back to the previous topic, Canada is actually a member of the TPP as well. It did end up joining. So I think you're you're looking at China. I think India probably looks pretty good, too. They're fairly isolated from a lot of these trade disputes. They are subject to increasing energy costs, and the, the monsoon this year is a little bit late, and it's not as good as they had hoped. So that's bad for the ag sector, which is, I think, about half of their economy. But That said, I think that you're probably going to have a bit of a bumpy time before it calms down again for emerging markets. They're a little bit undervalued, especially compared to the U.S. market. The U.S. economy still looks very strong, and I think you're going to see a stronger U.S. dollar, whereas everywhere else, I think you're going to see more accommodative monetary policy. So it ends up being a bit of a wash because that helps their companies, but then you sort of lose it on the currency a little bit, depending on what currency you're priced in.
1: And if we could discuss this a little further, I'd like to hear about CGI's bottom-up investment strategy for the emerging market investments. How does active management play a role here, and what are the advantages of being selective?
0: Well, uh, first of all, it's not Canadian General itself. Canadian General is is a Canada fund, but uh, in-house, we do have emerging markets portfolios, and we employ very much the same sort of strategy. And one of the reasons you want to be bottom up is that where you get the big whipsaws on the big macro trends and things that are exposed to the big swings and ETFs and even mutual funds, because that's where you can get a lot of hot money flowing in and out. And if you're actually investing in companies and investing, not just trading, then you really want to get exposure to the individual companies themselves, having a closed structure, like a closed end fund. Really helps with that because, again, you don't have the hot money flowing in and out. And you can afford to take a longer term view of things. And you can do things like get local settlement. So you're not only exposed to members of the index or companies that are listed as ADRs or GDRs in, in New York or London. So that helps a lot. And then you also don't have to just always go with the headline stocks. So once you're starting to do that, then you can really look at the quality of the company where they're serving, the quality of the management. And then over time, that's what will actually drive your returns.
1: Thanks. And with this being a CFA podcast, I want to circle back to something that you just brought up, which was, of course, closed-in funds. I'd like to hear from both of you about why you think this structure works well for global equity investments. And Noel, could we just turn things over to you for a moment? Yeah, I
2: think as a portfolio manager, one of the great advantages of managing a a closed fund is that you can take a longer-term perspective, particularly as a long-term investor. So I'm not worried about daily retail or mutual fund flows in and out of the portfolio. So I can buy some more attractive, less liquid, maybe idiosyncratic type names that I can invest in for the longer term. That, quite frankly, much bigger funds couldn't look at. So I'm not an index hugger. I can take a longer-term view. The other thing that I like about a closed-end fund is I think you've got a good governance structure in place with a, with a board who's overseeing and appointing the managers. So, you know, both are, are well separated, but kind of work well hand in glove. So, and I think for investors, you know, they can buy. Uh, unfortunately, one of the persistent the challenges to closed-end funds is discounts to their nav. So, but for investors, that gives an opportunity to buy very attractive portfolios at a discount to the underlying net asset value and, and hopefully uh, as, as growth uh, and returns come through at times those discounts narrow. So I think there's lots of advantages to closed-end funds. And the final thing I'd say is, is many closed-end funds, and including the New Ireland Fund that, that re- re- we manage, pay very attractive income distributions to underlying investors as well, which is a, a sort of a constant source of, of return to those clients. So. To me, they're the kind of advantages that uh, accrue from investing close and funds.
1: And Jonathan, is there anything you'd like to add?
0: Well, I agree with everything uh, that Noel just said. I think the one thing to also think about is if you're going outside of, say, you know, the, the S&P 500 or the FTSE, and you're in an open structure, an ETF, you really have to think about that, because especially with an ETF, they have to buy on the way up and they have to sell on the way down. And so you end up really exacerbating the moves. And I think once you get to something that's a little more illiquid or there's a little bit more geopolitical risk or anything like that, that's really the wrong structure. You want to be in something where... There's the discipline that you can afford to take a longer-term view of things, and it's in a legal structure, like a post end fund, that really allows you to do that. I mean, for example, you know, we're able to get local settlement in a number of countries that you just simply wouldn't be able to do with an open-ended structure.
1: Jonathan and Nol, thank you for making time for today's discussion. I think you raised a lot of important considerations, and we look forward to seeing how things pan out.
0: Thank you for joining us. We hope you will stop by again for news on this ever-changing space. Until next time, connect with us on Twitter at, at CEF Association, or by searching for the Closed End Fund Association on
1: LinkedIn and YouTube.